David, a man after God's own heart, part four. This morning we are looking at chapter 21, Deception on the Run. So last week we we looked at the friendship between David and Jonathan and drew some spiritual lessons for us from that, uh, that friendship, that deep friendship between the prince and the future king. Now, as we continue to read this his story, David's story, that is, there is no doubt that things are heating up. If they haven't already, they're really heating up for David. And he's now facing a different kind of challenge than the one that he faced before Goliath. In some ways, that challenge was clearly defined. It wasn't all that complicated You knew who the enemy was. The main threat was now something different. It was King Saul who was out to get him. His friend Jonathan had tried to protect him, but he could only do so much. So so he had to run away, run away from the people that he trusted, that he loved, And in the previous chapter, he took refuge with Samuel, the trusted Samuel who previously anointed him to be the future king. And he went to hang around with him, at, uh, with his prophets at Ramah. But Saul tracked him down. So David is on the run with nothing with him except the shirt on his back, so they say. So in the past... We know that David was able to kill his enemies, slaughter them, the giant Goliath, and then slaughter the Philistines. But now it wasn't just a case of killing Saul and problem is solved. Irrespective of Saul's character, David still had deep respect for God's anointed king, and that will come clearer in following chapters. More than that, more than that, he was also his wife's and best friend's father. Likewise, I think as believers and Christians, many, many times in our lives, solutions aren't as clear-cut with easy answers. Oh, just do that. It's not that easy, is it? Things, and, and because of that, because things get complicated so quickly, they can become messed up. And there's nowhere to hide. There's no easy solutions. In fact, the last third of the book of 1 Samuel is actually devoted to the period in which David was on the run from King Saul. It's interesting that the Gospels... If you read all of the Gospels, pretty much one third, the last third of the Gospels are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. That's, that's the intensity of it all. A lot of movies end up, as you, as you know, if you're into watching films and all of this, a lot of movies end up with a big chase scene at the end. And this is, comes after the hero has escaped from one threat to another to another. 
one clue to the significance, I suppose, of these chapters is that seven psalms were written during this period in David's life. Seven psalms. But unfortunately, there is quite a bit of deception going on in these chapters. I don't know how you feel about that. You and I might have, I suppose, expected something better from a man after God's own heart. God's chosen one. But no, his life is painted for us in all its colours. Nob is the place of David's flight of fear and Garth is the city of a mad refuge. And more than physical realities, I think these, these, both of these places, they represent spiritual realities where as believers we sometimes find ourselves. Fortunately, we have a God who knows where these places are. And in his mercy, he, he rescues us. He rescues us even from ourselves. And in the, the, the message, I suppose, this morning is that even in, a, in our most desperate moments, the Lord does not let go of his own. And that is a very comforting thought. So in verses 1 to 6, our first heading this morning is lying, lying in Nob, verses 1 to 6. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David answered the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission. I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what have you in hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever goes tonight. So the first place David goes to when he's on the run is the city of Nob where Ahimelech the high priest lived. This, this place has now, if the high priest is there, this is the place of the tabernacle and quite possibly where the Ark of the Covenant was as well because he tended to move around a bit. Now Nob was located just south of Gibeah where Saul lived and where, from where he ruled. Remember that at this stage, Jerusalem still hasn't, is not yet the capital. Unfortunately, David, as he turns up, he, he ends up deceiving the high priest while there. And this, this will have dire consequences in the future. This problem of lying appears several times in David's narrative. David, Jonathan, David's wife, Michal, all tell lies and Saul to protect themselves and each other from Saul. Although the Bible does not explicitly condemn those people who felt compelled to lie in these extreme situations, it also never approves of their lying. So don't use this, this, uh, this narrative, this story, and say, well, David lied. 
Well, Jonathan lied. It's there in the Bible. Don't do that. Don't do that. The Bible never approves of their lying. A lie is still a lie, even when told with good motivations to protect someone else. Also, the Bible doesn't record these lies to teach us that it's okay to lie. The lies are there because the people involved lied. Eugene Peterson says, David's life is an ideal life, but an actual life. The Bible records their stories, the good, the bad and the rest. David is a real person and real people mess up and sin. And God still loves us, but we will have to face the consequences of those sins. No two ways about it. When David arrived, the high priest Ahimelech uh, didn't exactly greet the, the, the one-time national hero with open arms and, you know, wanting to take selfies with him. Looks like word had got around that Saul was after him and this made people very, very nervous. So he asked him, why are you alone? You know, who, why is no one with you? And his response... David lies by telling him he is on a top secret mission. Was he trying to protect himself or, their pri- or, or, the, priest in, or the priest in, in doing so? Maybe he's doing both. David needed a couple of things. He needed food and he needed weapons. The only bread they had, they had at the time, was the, the holy consecrated bread. And the only weapon they had was Goliath's sword. Maybe you are thinking, back in your mind you're thinking that David in all of his deception does not deserve this provision. So let me ask you, what else is new? Who would be able to have their daily bread based on whether they deserved it or not? I, for one, can tell you that I, I receive my daily bread not because I'm very godly, but because my God is very gracious. Jesus once made a point about the Sabbath day by referring to this very episode. The Pharisees had accused Jesus and his disciples, who were a little bit hungry, of violating the Sabbath because they, they picked and ate grain as they walked through a field. And he responded in Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. What was Jesus getting at here? Well, the Pharisees were always picking on him, right? 
But Jesus meant that the intent of the law was fulfilled by this act of mercy. The second request that David had was for weapons. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or sword? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. And the priest replied, the, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, he knew, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. I'm thinking that by the way that David asked the question, just think about it. Why would they have weapons where the tabernacle is with God's presence, representing God's presence and in this consecrated holy place? Why would they have weapons there? I think David knew that this place was actually storing the prize weapon. Goliath's sword. That's why he went there. That was the reason he went there. This is the ultimate reason he risked coming to this holy place, which really wasn't all that far away from where Saul was. It's worth pondering as well that the, the same David who had refused Saul's armour because he was he was filled with the Spirit of God for battle. He's now retreating. He's now happy to use the weapon of his former pagan enemy. Let's recall his words of defiance as, as, he, as he was running towards Goliath. And he says, you come against me with, with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And yet, and yet in his desperation, he no longer depends on God's strength, on God's spirit. But now, suddenly relies on a sword, his enemy's sword, by saying, there is none like it, give it to me. Before, a slave was enough, enough with a few stones, That was enough to kill the giant and now he's using the very weapon that his giant, this giant was coming up against him. What a swap, right? What a swap. Past victories. That's what it was. It was a past victory. But past victories are no guarantees of future success. Sometimes our victories can give us a bit of reprieve and and say, well, I'm on top of the mountain now, I'm king of the hill, I'm right here, no one can touch me. But you know, this short visit to Nob is, is, is a lesson of what can happen to us when we are under the pump, when the pressure builds up, the enemy's f- 
favourite ploy, the enemy's favourite ploy is instilling fear, which then gives way to sin, which then gives way to unbelief. Goliath's sword should have reminded him, as, as, he, <clears throat> as he looked at it, Goliath should have reminded him of God's deliverance in the past. That's it. There it is. It's in a museum. There it is. You can look at it. Wow. And, and walk out of there and say, the same God who enabled me to cut off the head of my enemy is, is the same God who is with me always. But no, it's not enough now. He's willing to use it. As Christians, we should remember God's grace in Christ whenever we attempt to deceive in order to to get ourselves out of trouble. I'm going to push that point a little bit further and say, you know that the Bible is also known as the sword, right? God's word, the sword of the spirit. What if we redirect those words of David when he said, there is nothing like it, give it to me. I wonder if we could say the same thing about God's word. There is nothing like it, give it to me. Moving on, let's move to Dodgy Doug, verse 7. Dodgy Doug. I hope there are no dugs here, but anyway. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. Detained before the Lord means he could have been serving some time or he was uh, repenting of something. We don't actually know. But he was Doug the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. So danger crops up straight away in verse 7 with the introduction of the shadowy figure of Doug the Edomite. Now the Edomites, if you recall, were descendants of Esau and they were always arch enemies of the Israelites. Saul had a previous victory over the Edomites and it could possibly be that Doug then became one of Saul's servants. Right away you know that this guy is, is, is going to be trouble. It's like, a, like in a film again where, where they first introduce the bad guy sitting in a corner behind a shadow. That's what Doug is like. Suddenly the musical score changes and you know right away that this guy's a villain and you better watch out for him. As it turns out, Dodgy Doug is an informer and part of the Gestapo working for King Saul. And his presence at Nob with David and Ahimelech will have devastating, absolutely devastating consequences in the, in the following chapter. Don't go there just yet. What is the lesson for us? Um, those who, while those who are up to no good might be paranoid, always paranoid that somebody uh, 
might be watching or looking for an opportunity to dob them in. There is a certain, you know, always watching behind your back. But there is something that the Bible reminds us that it's not even a conspiracy, it's, it's a reality. You don't even have to be paranoid about it because it's real. Okay? The Bible advises and tells us and warns the believer it's even more serious in 1 Peter 5.8. Be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's going around. Right? The best commentary, I think, on David's unbelieving stopover at Nob is... Unfortunately, the place there it leads him. And he ends up in a place called Garth. Mad in Garth, verses 10 to 13. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Garth. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the, the, the king of the land? Isn't he the, the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. In verse 14, Achish said to his servants, Look at the man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Not content with retaking Goliath's sword, David now travels to Goliath's hometown, the late Goliath's hometown. He probably fled here to escape Saul's domain. Okay, that's, that's, that's more than likely. Rationale being the enemy of my enemy is my friend, as the saying goes. And what escaped his mind, however, is that he himself was the main source of the Philistines' woes. He didn't just kill their champion, Right? Their warrior. But he killed many of their soldiers as well. There were many, many widows. There, were, there was a lot of mourning in, in Gath because of the stuff that David had done. It would be like, you know, why did he do this? It, I, it would be like a Jewish family driving to Germany and deciding to have a picnic in just outside the gates of Auschwitz in 1940. Why would you do that? It's insane. His actions are obviously reckless, if not downright stupid. And he intended to conceal his identity among the Philistines, but God didn't let him. 
God didn't let him. The people recognized him. They wanted to recognize him from the battlefield. A.W. Pink says, God will not allow his people to remain incognito in this world. Let me just repeat that. God will not allow his people to remain incognito in this world. Have you ever been there? You said, hmm. Right? Happens like a wedding. You're telling me, a pastor, right? Straight away, you're in a wedding, you're in a dinner table, and people straight away, so what do you do for a living? Mate, it's going to happen. Here he comes. I'm a pastor. Here we go. We'll have a nut job on our table. God will not allow his people. It's not just me, it's you as well. As soon as David entered the city, the people recognized him and raised the alarm to King Achish. Realizing he was out of options, he resorts to desperate tactic in order to deceive. Again, that theme of deception, he tries to deceive his enemies. So what does he do? Well, he starts doing graffiti on the gate. That'll get him in trouble. But not only that, he starts drooling spit down his beard. Now, this is a, it's a far cry from his reputation as a crazy, mighty warrior, afraid of no one. His action is obviously crazy and it was, you know, it was now appropriate that he act that, 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 that way as well. Not just the action that he went into his enemy's town. Now he's acting like he's, he's, he's a nutshell. One commentator said, the man who stood calmly before Goliath because he was possessed with faith now acts like a maniac because he is possessed with fear. That's what fear does. Also, the Bible describes Saul's madness. It describes some of the mad episodes of King Saul. And the irony is now that David himself starts to resemble his arch nemesis. Which is sad. I think as with our own experience, let's remember that things can go downhill very, very quickly. Ever notice that? Only recently David was playing the harp in a beautiful surrounding with music to calm King Saul down, you know, to put him to sleep then eating at the king's table, leading the armies into battle and hearing all the songs and all the girls singing, David killed, no, Saul killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. All the accolades, everybody loving King David, the former shepherd. Now he's slobbering all over his beard in Philistine territory. Wow, that went down quickly, didn't it? But as always, in God's economy, nothing is lost. 
There's a couple of good things that emerge from this very sorry episode. Firstly, is that it worked. David puts in such a performance that he is nominated for the Oscars. And the king's cynical response is basically, I have enough disease, enough nut jobs in my own kingdom, I don't need any more. There is also this ancient superstition that harming lunatics or those uh, insane is, brings bad luck. It's not good luck to do so. Whichever way you see it, this is not a good look for the anointed future king of Israel. But there's more to this. There's more to this sorry episode. Two psalms, two psalms, 34 and 56, emerge from this experience. Like I said, nothing is wasted. Once David departed from Gath and and back to relative safety, he reflected on this low point in his life and realised that it was only God who let him survive it. He protected him this whole time. Now, how do we know this? Well, it just so happens, no, it's God's providence, that there are inscriptions at the, just after the, the numbers, say 34 and 56, there are inscriptions underneath the psalm which actually tells us, uh, you know, the background to the psalm and what prompted it. Psalm 34, uh, together with the inscription, starts like this. Right, Psalm 34, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. By the way, in case you see a difference in the name uh, Abimelech and Achish, it's because Abimelech means, it's like the Egyptian pharaoh. You know, it's pharaoh one, two, three, four, and, and all of this. So, Abimelech basically means the king, right? And Achish was his actual name, just in case you're going to ask me later, all right? Don't ask. So verse 1, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man, who do you think he's talking about? This poor man called and the Lord heard him, he saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. And then those beautiful words, right, that we know, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. You see, a psalm like this, and the psalm continues obviously, but it, it emerges, it has, a, it has a context, it has 
a birthplace in pain. And this is it. And God used that through David to inspire us, his people, through all generations because we will always be in trouble, we will always need deliverance, we will always, you know, shame and fear the enemy time and again. It's, it's, it's relent, unrelenting. But what is the promise? That the Lord delivers us. This is where we have to go. There is no one else. It, it, Saul's sword isn't going to help you. Hey, what are you going to do with that? Pretty hard to hide, but the Lord is with us. The Lord is good. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Let's take our refuge in him always. And then in Psalm 56, Psalm 56, again the inscription just underneath the the numbers, for the director of music. So he says, okay, this is for for Elizabeth Ford, this one, okay. (laughs) To the tune of, to the tune of a dove on distant oaks. I don't know. What tune is that? Sounds of silence, I don't know. Um, of David, a miktam. When? When the Philistines had seized him in Gath. That was the circumstance. So we have all those details there, right there. This is what he says, just in verses 1 to 3. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. Doesn't sound like a very nice place to be. And when I am afraid, what do I do? I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, and I'm not afraid. And here is the the question, a rhetorical one. What can mere mortals do to me? What can mere mortals do to me? Right? Well, they can actually do a lot. But if God is for you, who can be against you? So God not only protected David from Saul and then from King Achish, but also protected David from his own sin, from his own madness. And this behaviour and others will come to light in in, in following weeks, but, but they're a timely reminder that the best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. I borrowed that, it's not mine by the way. So that him and will cost others. He was on the run and some of those mistakes cost him and will cost others very, very dearly. It wasn't just him. And I think when we're facing difficult times, in desperation, 
I think we will be tempted to make not just wrong decisions, but downright stupid ones as well. Very silly. This is why we need to be careful, extra, extra careful. These are the words in Hebrews. Hebrews 3.12 See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away turns away from the living God. But even, this is the grace, this is the mercy. But even when we make mistakes, know that God is still with us to help, to guide us in the right direction, especially during those difficult times. So let's continually look, listen, cry out, and most of all, continue to, to trust, to trust him. And finally, our last lesson this morning, David received provision from the, the sacred bread of the tabernacle. Today we celebrated communion. What does that remind us of his sacrifice, but also reminds us of the bread of life? God's greatest provision for you and me is Jesus Christ, who is the true bread that meets our greatest need. He is the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats this bread, they will live forever. That is his promise. That is his provision. May God bless us. Amen.